Well, I uh, feel like I need to reintroduce myself. My name is Steve Benninger, and I actually am the lead pastor of this church, and it's good to see you today. Um, I've been on a break during the month of July, and if you're new around here, don't know what's, what all that's about, or maybe you've just been wondering if I'm a slacker or what. Um, how that all came about was three years ago, actually three years ago this Sunday, when I took this role, the team that was interviewing me said, well, if you become lead pastor, your, your salary is quite low. It needs to be raised up. You're not even on the charts. And I said, well, I'm not that concerned about that really, but I would love to have a month every summer to rest and relax and restore and rejuvenate and replenish and all those other R words that we like. Because the way I'm wired, I think I can be a better pastor the other 11 months if I could have that. And so uh, that was agreed upon, and I am grateful for that. And uh, I got to do a lot of cool things during the month of July. Took a vacation with my family and uh, visited. (laughs) Why is that fun? I didn't say a vacation from my family. I said a vacation with my family. Um, We had a great time down on the Outer Banks and in Virginia. Got to visit several different churches, attend a couple of conferences, read a few books, and uh, also, I went hang gliding this summer. I told you guys that I was trying to work up the nerve to uh, jump off a cliff and do this, and um, it wasn't really a cliff, okay? It was more like a a gentle slope uh, on the dunes down there on the Outer Banks near Kitty Hawk, where the Wright brothers did their thing, and the sand is very forgiving if you mess up, but... uh, a couple of slides I'm going to show you to prove that I actually did this. I took some lessons and then uh, leaped off of there. and was actually airborne for about 10 to 15 seconds. <laughs> and um, you'll notice there are no pictures of the landing because the landing was kind of ugly, okay? So I did actually land on my feet two out of the five launches. So I'm batting 400 on that, maybe better next time. But um, enjoyed a great time and... Uh, got to think and read and pray a lot, primarily about God's vision for this church. And I'll say it again, I've said it before, God has put in my heart an incurable love for the church of Jesus Christ. Not just this church, but the capital C church, the worldwide body of Christ. I just love it. And I know it's a work of God because I don't know that would have been in me naturally, But I still believe that the church is the hope of the world. Despite its flaws, despite its imperfections, despite its shortcomings, I believe that the church of Jesus is the hope of this world. The church is the body that has been entrusted with the great commission to carry the greatest message in the universe to our world. I love the church. I'm fascinated by it. I'm curious about it. I'm intrigued by it. When I'm not here, I'm wherever we're at, I'm usually looking for churches to just kind of check out what God's doing in the place that I'm in. And I have an ache and a longing for the church of Jesus to be what he envisioned it to be. God put that in me many years ago. When I think about this church, New Life, which I love deeply, which was founded 23 years ago by a team of 11 people who came to town from central Virginia, started at the Gehanna Middle School West in the band room, just up the road a little bit. And uh, my son had band lessons in there, uh, band practice in there last year, and I'd walk in there with him, and it's like, 
son, do you realize, you know, what happened in this room 23 years ago? And he's like, he's not real impressed about that. (laughs) But, um, you know, it gets kind of nostalgic. When I think about this church and pray about this church, and what God's up to here, what he's doing, a, a picture, a mental image forms in my mind, and a phrase has embedded itself in my heart that I can't seem to shake. The picture in my mind is of teams, just like this church was founded by a team. Teams of new lifers, teams of Christ followers coming together, doing life together, sharing life together, loving each other, and grabbing on to a kingdom-sized mission to tackle for Christ. Dozens and dozens of teams, like the team of students that was serving some elderly folks down in the uh, Maryland, West Virginia area this last week. Like the team that, the large team that served our children in vacation Bible school this week. Like the team that's in China right now, halfway on the other side of the world, you know, halfway around the globe, sharing the gospel and serving people there. Teams, worship teams, ministry teams, prayer teams, serving teams, church planting teams. Dozens and dozens of energized teams, God-called teams, enjoying life together, loving each other, and then serving in a mission that God has called them to. I can see it. I can see some of you on those teams. And the phrase that has captured me is this, transformed people teaming up, touching the world. Would you say that with me? Transformed people teaming up, touching the world. Now, when I say transformed people, I don't mean perfect people. We're all in process, aren't we? But people who have been touched by the grace of God and are seeing their lives change, teaming up together. And I'll talk about teaming in just a couple of weeks, but these are the things I want to talk about these next few weekends in this series that I'm titling A Church for the World. Next week, we'll talk about transformed people. And what that's all about and, and how transformation comes into our lives and how it happens and all of that. And the following weekend, we'll talk about teaming up and the fact that Jesus formed a team and God is a team and it's rooted in theology and all that. And then the final week, we'll talk about touching the world with the gospel of Christ. But before we get into all that, this weekend, I just felt compelled that there's something very foundational to all of that that we must make sure we get right first. In fact, if we don't get this right, what we're going to talk about today, all of our missional activity, all of our teamwork, all of our efforts to touch the world will be off the mark. And true transformation, I mean true, God-ordained, spirit-generated transformation won't take place in our lives or the lives of other people. I'm talking about the core message that we take to the world, that we call people to, that we believe ourselves. I'm talking about the gospel. And before anything else, we must get the gospel right. And you say, well, duh. (laughs) You know, isn't that a given? And I would say, no, not these days, not in our culture. Not in the world in which we live. You know, there are a lot of voices out there in the blogosphere sending mixed signals about what the core message of the church to the world needs to be. We live in a flat world these days. Everybody's connected. I can get on my Mac 
laptop this afternoon and I can open it up and I can read blogs from pastors on the West Coast and North Carolina and the UK and Southeast Asia. And in the blogosphere where pastors work out their theology and express their viewpoints, there are many notions, you need to know this, there are many notions about what the gospel is and what the core message of the, of the, of the church to the world needs to be. It can be very confusing. For example, I have some pastor friends who've spent some time in Africa this past year. And you know what they tell me? They say, Steve, do you know what the African continent, do you know what the primary message that the Africans are getting from the American church and the American missionaries these days? You know what the primary message is? It's this. Jesus Christ wants to be your Savior, and if you let Jesus be your Savior, he will lift you out of your suffering and cause you to become healthy and wealthy and prosperous like we are over in America. With Jesus, the American dream is within your reach, or at least the African equivalent of it. And I hear that and I think, is that the gospel? Is, is that the core message that we're supposed to be sharing with the world? And you've got to know that the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel sounds mighty good to people who are poverty-stricken, diseased, oppressed, hungry. But is, is that the gospel? Cousin to that gospel is what I call the life improvement gospel or the life enhancement gospel, which basically says that Jesus came and died on the cross to make your life better, to help you be more successful, to have better relationships, to have less stress, and to have a better sex life. <laughs> and people hear that and they're like, sign me up, you know. <laughs> yeah, the life improvement gospel. Very popular. Another version of the gospel says that Jesus died on the cross to resolve the pressing social injustice issues that humans face that his death on the cross was primarily to restore equality among humans across the globe. I hear that. It's like, I know that's a good thing. Is that the gospel, though? Still another version that's gaining popularity today suggests that Jesus died on the cross primarily to save the planet, to restore Mother Earth, to create a more environmentally friendly habitat for future generations. Is that why he died on the cross? Is that the gospel? You've got to know there are many voices speaking out there on this subject. And you also need to know that this message today is probably as much for me as it is for you and maybe more so. I need to hear myself today say the things I'm going to say about the gospel just to further cement it in my own heart and mind. Because the gospel is under attack. I think regarding all these different versions of the gospel, I like what Pastor Mark Deaver from Washington, D.C. has written. I think he had great insight. He said this, It serves us well to understand the difference, listen, between the gospel message and the implications of the gospel message. It's a subtle distinction, but it's very important. See, what's happening is that things are getting added to the gospel. Some of them are not very good things, and others of them are very good things. But the question is, what is the core message? What is the gospel? 
I think there's an important distinction that should not be lost. It's the distinction between the primary purpose of Jesus' death on the cross and the good works that his followers are doing in the world, like helping to relieve suffering. Now, you guys know I'm a both-and guy. I've said that. I'm still a both-and guy, not either or. I think we should be proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ and doing the works of Jesus Christ. I don't think it's either or. I think it's both and. But when it comes to this message, we've got to make sure we got the right message. And then we haven't loaded it up with other things that aren't really the gospel. They're good things that Christians do in the world. Are you following me? Okay. I've been reminded lately that the core message of the church needs to be the gospel and that the gospel is first and foremost about reconciling mankind with his creator because mankind is by nature alienated from his creator. It's primarily about that, not upgrading our lifestyle, not making us wealthy, not even saving the planet, which is a good thing, but it's not the gospel. Dr. D.A. Carson is a very smart man. He teaches at Trinity Seminary up in Illinois, and he wrote this, or he said this, if the church's megaphone message to the world is that we should all be working together to relieve human suffering and save the planet while minimizing the message of Jesus' cross and its true purpose, then we are guilty of placing in the background that which should be in the foreground and placing in the foreground that which should be in the background. I think he's right. It's the gospel, the true gospel, that needs to be in the foreground of our message to the world. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, you're confusing me, Steve. Aren't we supposed to be going into the world and relieving suffering and and blessing our community and doing those things? Yes, a thousand times yes. We're doing all those things through this church, but we're doing it because we have accepted and believed the gospel. And Jesus has changed our hearts and he's given us a heart for the world, yes? Yes? to serve and love and bless, but we've got to keep that message pure, the message of the gospel. So you say, well, what is it? What is the gospel? What is the core message that the church has been entrusted with that we are to take to the world? Probably more than anybody else, it was Paul the Apostle who most clearly defined for us in detail what the gospel message is. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you can pull the study guide out. I've placed the first few verses of that chapter on the study outline for you. And I would like us to read this out loud together. I'm going to stop you once or twice so you can take a pen and circle some key words, okay? This is a, a, a seminal text when it comes to the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15.1. Read it aloud with me, please. Now, brothers... I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now stop there for a moment and circle the words first importance. What does that mean? That's in the foreground, right? This is like very important stuff. This is not background information. This is like the central message that Paul and the apostles preached. Here it is. 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Verse 11, whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. There it is, the gospel. Do you see it? Paul's gospel. What I believe is to be our core message to the world. Here it is. Jesus died for our sins. According to the scriptures, it was predicted. He was buried, proved that he died. He was raised to life three days later, and he appeared to many people, proving that he was indeed the risen Son of God. That is the gospel message. And in particular, you might want to circle that phrase, died for our sins. Critical, crucial to understand. Paul states emphatically that this is the gospel that he and the other apostles preached. In other places in his writings, he calls it the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of God, my gospel, and even the glorious gospel. I think the more we understand it, the more glorious we'll see that it is. The New Testament tells us that as followers of Jesus, we must believe this gospel, preach and proclaim this gospel, obey this gospel, if called to do so, leave home and even lose our lives for this gospel, testify to this gospel, not be ashamed of this gospel, not hinder it, refuse to accept another gospel in its place. We are called to defend and contend for the gospel, to not put up with those who pervert it, be ready to go and share it, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, to serve in the work of the gospel, and to be faithful stewards of this gospel. Church, we are to be very, very clear on our core message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's to be central in our communication with a lost world, of first importance, like it says. Not in the background, but in the foreground. It's a matter of emphasis, isn't it? I think when we look at this gospel, we can rejoice in the fact that it is rooted in history, verifiable historical events. Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again, he appeared to many people. Historical events. Our gospel is not blind faith, it's rooted in history, things that actually happen in real space and real time and can be demonstrated to have happened. And I think we should marvel that the gospel makes a way for sinful people to be saved. That's what it says. By this gospel, you are saved. That is, reconciled reconciled to an absolutely holy creator. The gospel of grace is the only message that can deal with our sin that can give us a right standing before God, that can transform a human heart, that can bring eternal life. It is worth living for, and Jesus said it's worth dying for, losing our lives for. Now, I want to say two very important things about this gospel, then I'm going to tell two stories. 
And I'm going to invite anybody here today who has never believed the gospel to do so today, okay? First thing I want to say is this gospel, Jesus' death for our sins, burial, resurrection, and appearances, only saves those who receive it, believe it deeply, hold firmly to it, and take their stand on the gospel. That's what verse 2 says. In other words, it's a person's heartfelt response to the gospel message that determines its effect in their life. I could tell you about two guys I know, both of whom heard the same gospel message, both of whom were moved at some point to pray a prayer to receive Jesus as their Savior. Today, one of those guys is growing in Christ. He's in the Word. He's in church. He's connected. He's serving others. His lifestyle is giving evidence that his heart was truly transformed by the gospel. The other guy, sadly, is not connected. He's not really much interested in spiritual things or Jesus Christ or the Word of God. It's very sad. It's like the gospel message was a seed that got planted in each of their hearts. In the one guy, the seed took root in the soft soil of his heart and began to put its roots down and began to bear fruit in his life. But in the other guy, the seed fell on hard or stony ground or else the cares of this life grew up around it and choked out the life of that seed. Same seed, different soil, different result. It is a person's response to the seed of the gospel that makes all the difference in their life. The second thing I want to say is the gospel, this gospel tells of God's amazing grace. But grace is only amazing to those who understand their need for it. You know, I think when it comes to the subject of grace, there are two kinds of people in this room, in our world. There are the amazed and the aglazed. Some people are amazed by grace. They are overjoyed. They are overwhelmed. They are grateful. It just blows them away that the God of heaven would offer to pay their sin debt. Other people are aglazed. Their eyes kind of glaze over, and it's kind of like, oh, whatever, you know. Oh, oh hum. Not impressed. I've got to be honest and tell you that at, at certain points in my life, I've been both amazed and aglazed by grace. There was a whole season of my life when grace just didn't seem that amazing to me. I'm going to tell you about that in just a minute. Let me see if I can explain to you why many people in our culture are not amazed by grace, okay? So let me give you an analogy that I think will kind of make it, make it uh, clearer to you. Let's say when you walked into church today, I saw you and I came up to you and I said, hey, I've got some good news for you. Someone just came along and paid your $25,000 traffic fine. Isn't that great news? Would you be overwhelmed and overjoyed by that? Or would you be a bit confused, like, $25,000 traffic fine? What did I do? <laughs> Why? You, you might not be amazed. The good news might not sound like good news to you because you don't understand it. In fact, you might even be a little bit offended 
because I'd be insinuating that you are a less than conscientious driver incurring a fine of that magnitude. And so the good news might not seem like good news to you. But if I said, oh, you know, let me, let me explain this to you, okay. Just down the road here, there's a blind children's convention going on. And the speed limit in this area has been reduced to 15 miles an hour. It's been posted all along this route so as not to endanger these blind children. And you went speeding through there at 55 miles an hour, endangering all of those little children, a very severe violation that carries with it a huge fine that was deserved because of what you did. But I got to tell you, someone who loves you and cares about you came along and offered to pay your $25,000 fine for you. Don't you think that if you really got that, the severity of the violation, that, that grace would sound pretty amazing to you? Does that make sense? You know, we live in a culture where most people don't get it. And grace just doesn't seem amazing. You talk, you know, you say to someone, you know, Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins. And it's like, so? <laughs> no, you, you, you don't understand. You, 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 have, you owe God an unpayable fine. What fine? I'm, what do I do? I'm fine. I, I'm good. I'm a good person. But when someone finally has their life laid out next to the holy, righteous commandments of a holy God and they see how far short they fall of God's righteous and holy requirements and and come to the realization that because God is a holy and righteous and just God, he has to punish sin, he must, but someone came along and paid your fine for you, then grace becomes amazing and you go, oh my, oh my. What, what otherworldly kind of love would do that for me? Friends, it's so important that we, that we get this straight. I don't know where this mindset started in our culture when it started getting a foothold here. Maybe it was when the Ten Commandments got taken out of our schools. And no longer were we exposed every day to the righteous and holy requirements of a holy God and reminded every day of how far short we fall of those. Maybe it was when parents stopped teaching their kids the law of God and the fear of God. But whatever the cause, wouldn't you agree with me that we live in a culture that's generally not amazed by grace, but should be, if we could see it. The main reason Jesus died on the cross, as the gospel states, was for our sins. Theologians call this the penal substitutionary atonement. There's a mouthful for you. You could probably impress somebody at lunch today by using that, just throwing that out. What does that mean? It means this, an innocent third party out of pure love took upon himself the fair and just punishment that our sins rightfully deserve. Jesus died for our sins, not primarily to save the planet, not primarily to bring equality among humans across the globe, certainly not to bring health, wealth, and prosperity to everyone. He died for our sins to reconcile us to a holy God. 
This is the gospel. This is what the Bible says. The, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 said, We esteemed him stricken of God, smitten by him and afflicted. But no, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, he wrote. Everyone has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on us. No, the Lord laid on him, on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God has made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Peter 3.18, For Christ has once suffered for sins, the just, that's Jesus, for the unjust, that's us, that he might bring us to God. Bridge the gap. You see, this world, by nature, is alienated from its creator, enemies in their minds by wicked works, the Bible says. And justice will run its course if there had not been intervention by the Son of the living God tell you when you really get this your socks will start rolling up and down your legs you'll start to get joyful and excited about grace about grace so one man said the primary reason we all need jesus is not primarily to enhance our lifestyle it's to have an adequate defense on the day of judgment when all of us will stand before a holy god having repeatedly broken his holy law Only the message of the gospel of amazing grace will save anyone on that day. A while back I heard uh, Kirk Cameron give his testimony. You know who he is? Back in the, what, 80s or 90s he had that show, what was it? Growing Pains, that was it, yeah. And um, he said this, he said that back when he was 18 and living it up, he was an atheist who had it all, fame, money, women, a bright future in the entertainment industry, the whole thing. One day a friend invited him to church and kind of as a favor, Kirk said, okay, I'll go. And he sat in the back and crossed his arms and you know, basically was saying, you know, impress me. <laughs> and, and went to kind of pick apart the message from the pastor. And later he said that what struck him most was what the pastor did not say that day. The pastor did not stand up and say, you should try Jesus because Jesus will give you more happiness and peace. Because in his mind, Kirk said, I already had happiness and peace, and a lot more than that. That message wouldn't have reached me. But what that pastor did say that, that day was this, if you don't have Jesus in your life, When it comes to Judgment Day and you're standing there before a holy God and the books are open showing the list of sins that you've committed all during your life against a holy God, you will be totally defenseless against those charges. And justice will take its course. Kirk said, that rattled me. I didn't have an answer for that. I didn't have a comeback. The truth of how Kirk Cameron had treated God during his life began to sink in and he couldn't shake it. He said, when I, when I really got it, when I came to grips with the truth that I was doomed without Jesus Christ, I ran to Jesus, he said. I ran to Jesus, pleading with him for his grace to make me right before God. 
When Kirk Cameron finally saw it, when he saw his true standing before God because of his sin, grace became amazing to him. And if you know his story, you know that after he accepted the message of God's grace, it changed his life, totally transformed him. He's been an outspoken ambassador for Jesus and the gospel since then. Grace became amazing to him at the age of 18. Grace became amazing to me at the age of 18. My story is a little different than his. I was a church kid. I grew up in church. I was seven when I first prayed a prayer to ask Jesus to be my Savior. I actually did it twice, once at home in my rocking chair and then a few months later at vacation Bible school. Like I said, I was a church kid. I was taught the Bible. I memorized lots of scripture through the Iwana programs that my church had. I was grateful for that, or I'm grateful for that. I had parents who trained me and prayed for me. When it came to God and Jesus and grace, I was really very well taught, but I wasn't amazed by grace as a kid. Fast forward 11 years to my first year in college. I was on the other side of the country, and... uh, The truth about me was that my teenage years had pretty much been about me. Anybody else relate to that? I mean, it's just pretty much about me, you know. My stuff, my life, my happiness, uh, making me happy, using people to make me happy. That was what my life was about during my teen years. But God was working on me. Thank God for moms who pray. And uh, late one fall night, In 1979, I found myself at the age of 18 driving up a hillside overlooking the campus late that night. It was very late, after midnight, I think. All I knew knew is that something had been churning inside of me for several days, churning and churning and churning. All I knew is that I had to get alone with God. You ever do that? And I did. I drove my little wagon up side of this hill. I found a clearing. I got out. I opened up the back hatch and I just laid out looking up into the heavens, looking up at the stars. I wasn't even totally sure why I was there. I just knew I needed to get alone with God. And as I laid there looking up into the heavens, something started to happen. Waves started to come over me. Waves of conviction and guilt over my sin. And these scenes started flashing on the screen of my mind, these scenes of things that I had done, ways I had treated people, ways I had promoted and exalted myself, ways I had treated God, how I had used people for for selfish purposes, how I'd been so ungrateful to my parents. All these scenes started flashing on the screen of my mind, just rapid fire and then the conviction and the guilt. And... uh, I remember I was starting to feel something in my eye. It's like, what's that? It's like, it was tears. Before I knew it, I was sobbing and heaving before God. And I was trying to get words out to him. I was just saying, oh God, it's so ugly. My heart is so ugly. It's so filthy. It's so full of stench. I didn't, you know, I had always been the best Christian I knew my age, I thought. And the Holy Spirit was showing me how sinful I really was. And he was mad matching up my life against the holy law of God, and I saw how ugly it really was. And then all those verses that I had learned as a kid started pouring through my mind. And I remember asking, I remember just through sobs, I remember just saying, oh God, if you could find it in your heart 
to take all my sin, all my filth, all my selfishness, all my lust and pride and idolatry and all this is, that's a part of me. If you, if you could just find it in your heart to take all that and nail it to Jesus' cross, I would be so grateful. I mean, could you find it in your heart to do that for a guy like me? Would you be gracious to me, God? And grace became amazing to me that night for the first time as I felt God's grace washing over me and cleansing me and washing my sins away. And I drove down that mountain that night a little faster than I did when I was going up a few hours earlier (laughs) because I was a different guy because of the grace of God becoming amazing to me. Is grace amazing to you? Are you amazed by grace? Since that time, whenever we sing Amazing Grace, I join many of you who marvel that God would reach down from heaven and extend his grace to a wretch like me. A wretch like me. The gospel of grace. Do you understand it a little bit better now? Just a little bit? It's to be our message. It's the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He rose from the grave. He appeared to many people proving that he was alive. It's the gospel of grace. He did it so that we might be reconciled to a holy God. 